Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 13. Abraham, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat, this opportunity you've given us to gather together as Mishpachah's family to worship before you uh, as one person, as one people, with one voice. Uh, through our Messiah. Father, I thank you that uh, you are a God who is active and who continues to reveal yourself in mighty and powerful ways in our lives and in uh, the lives of others through the work you are doing through us. I pray that as we open up your word today that you will breathe boldly into our hearts and our lives and that you will speak uh, new life into each and every one of us today, that we will leave this place changed and prepared to impact the world around us for the good of your kingdom and your holy name. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Sorry, the only reason I rushed through the Sadaka stuff, besides the fact that I hate talking about that, um, I, I really need to have somebody else do that part, but <laughs> besides the fact that I hate talking about that and begging for money is because I'm really excited about this message. Uh, I've been excited about it for several days now. Um, this week's Parsha is a really fun Parsha. Um, it is mind-blowing the way we get to see uh, kind of the human condition play out as we look through this week's Parsha. Uh, and this week's Parsha is Parsha Shalach uh, from Numbers 13 through 15. Um, and it's really exciting to read and to see. And, and we can really look through it and see ourselves in many of the things that we read about in this Parsha, right? So the Parsha opens up, verse, thir- uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. says, says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Send some men on behalf Uh, on your behalf to investigate the land of Canaan, which I am giving to B'nai Israel. Each man you are to send will be a prince uh, of the tribe of his fathers, a man from each tribe. Um, In Deuteronomy, it says that the people asked Moses to send spies. Here in Numbers, it says that God asked Moses to send spies. And I actually think it's some hybrid form of that. Odds are the people were afraid because this is that first generation of Israel that, uh, you know, couldn't handle Moses being on the mountain for too long and built a golden calf to worship because they thought Moses was dead. Um, And so they were afraid. They weren't sure what really was on the other side of the river that they're now staring at. They weren't 100% confident that what God said was true was really true. And so I think they went to Moses and said, all right, is there any way we might could like send some dudes over to give us a heads up of what's going on? And Moses, I think, went to Adonai and said, hey, your people still suck. Would you be okay if we send some spies over? And I think Adonai said, I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but uh, I think Adonai said, you know what? You're right. They do. So let's go ahead and send some people over uh, to spy out the land. And it's important to notice that there's 12 people that are sent over, 12 spies, right? One spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of that, 10 come back with a negative report, two come back with a, uh, a, a, a promising report with a, a positive report of the land. And of those two, most people are not aware of this. Of those two, only one was Jewish. Only one was actually of the tribes of Abraham, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You want to guess who it is? Joshua. Joshua was Jewish. Caleb wasn't. The Torah tells us that Caleb was a Kenizzite. Now, Kenizzites, if you go back to Genesis, Kenizzites were one of the original inhabitants of Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land. The Kenizzites were one of the original inhabitants. They were not in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not actually Jewish. Yet here is Caleb, 
who is a Kenizzite, a descendant of Kenizzites, who somehow not only becomes a part of the nation of Israel, not only gets grafted into Israel, not only becomes a part of the tribe of Judah, but becomes the head of the tribe of Judah. And not only the head of the tribe of Judah, but is in the lineage of Yeshua. Let that sink in a little bit. So the two that brought back a, a, a promising report, a positive report of the promised land, are the same two that ultimately lead Israel into the promised land because Joshua and Caleb are the only two of this generation they get to live and see the promised land again because of these events that are about to happen because of the spies. So of the two that lead Israel into the promises of God, one was Jewish and one wasn't. I just want that to sink in. That has nothing to do with my message at all except that I want you to understand that God's plan has always included Jew and Gentile as one people. His plan was never to have a separation, a dichotomization. His plan was to never have these, the, the way that we see things in the body of Messiah today. But I get excited looking at this because here's a Jew and a Gentile that are leading the nation of Israel into the promises of God. And it's a powerful, powerful image. So Moses sends his spies in. And, and I kind of feel bad because Moses, we see some of kind of his human nature come out as he's encouraging them of what to look for, right? So in verse 16, it says, these are the names, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. It says, as he sent them to explore the land of and he said to them, go up through the Negev, uh, then go into the hill country. See what the land is like and the people living there, whether they might be strong or weak, few or many. In what kind of land are they living? Is it good or bad? Also, what about the cities in which they are living? Are they unwalled or do they have fortifications? How is the soil fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So Moses is kind of leading them along in what he wants them to look for. And, you know, this is really a matter of faith, right? Or at least it should be. God is them sitting at the shores of the Jordan River, and he says, you're about to enter into my promises for you. I'm giving you a land flowing of milk and honey, and it's really a matter of faith. The nation of Israel should have went, sweet, let's do this. Let's go see what this is all about. Let's just go take it. But instead, they send spies across, and Moses leads the spies on what they should look for. Is the land difficult, or is it plentiful? Is it fertile, or is it not? Are there walled cities, or are there not? Are the people big, or are they not? And he's leading them, right? Imagine had they gone in with no instructions, just go see if the land's good and bring some fruit back. How much different things could have been? But instead, they're sent over by Moses, prepared to look for good and bad at the same time. So they go in and they, they uh, look around and they see that everything is literally exactly how God said. So much so that they come back carrying fruit. And it says that they came back carrying a bunch of grapes that was so big that they had to have it on sticks and carry it between several people. And uh, the rabbis actually say that it was eight people that it took to carry the, uh, the, the clump of grapes. And then one carried a pomegranate and one carried, uh, there was one other thing. Huh? figs there we go my mind went blank on that one so one carried a really big fig and one carried a really big pomegranate and here comes eight dudes carrying a clump of grapes on some sticks in to show how big they are and they come in and 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 then joshua and caleb come in empty-handed all they have is a promising report of the lamb so they come in with all of this fruit and the the reality is is Tradition says, and I believe it's likely true, that they brought the fruit back the way they did specifically to enhance the narrative they were about to present. Because what they tell the people of Israel is the land is exactly how God said. Everything is perfect. The land is flowing with milk and honey. There is plenty to eat. There is plenty to do. The place is wonderful, but we can't take it. 
but we can't take it because the people are too big. They're like giants. We look like grasshoppers to them, and we think they thought so, uh, the, a, a, and they look like these giants. And, and look, here's some giant grapes to show you how big they are. The only way they can get that big is to eat these monster grapes. Look at how big they are. And Joshua and Caleb stop them dead in their tracks and say, no, listen, ignore what they're saying. The land is perfect, and it is ripe, and it is ready for the taking. Let's go do what God has called us to do, and let's go take the promised land. And the nation of Israel decided to start plotting to kill Joshua and Caleb because they believed in the evil report of the promised land. They believed in the enemy's description of God's promises. They believed in a counterfeit narrative of the reality of what God had in store for the nation of Israel. And because of that, the entire generation dies in the wilderness with exception of Joshua and Caleb. They are not able to go into the promised land. Only their children the second generation of Israel is ultimately able to go into the promised land. And as we look at this, what we realize is that the people of Israel, as we've said before, this first generation coming out of Egypt, they were used to Egypt providing for them. They were used to their needs being met by the Egyptians. And it, it, it's not to say it was a good scenario by any means, but they had this you know, messed up idea remembering or misremembering or however you want to word it back to Egypt and how grand and glorious things were in Egypt. Whereas their children, the second generation that were raised in the wilderness, all they knew was God's provision. So when all you've lived on is God's promises, it is way easier to trust in God's promise for his promised land. But when all you've known is the world's provision, it's way more difficult to trust in the promise of God and the promised land. And so what we see is this entire generation, the first generation of Israel, is, is condemned to die in the wilderness. And immediately afterwards, they hear this message from Moses. Hey, God said, you guys are idiots, and you're going to die here, and your children will inherit the promises of God. And they went, um, we done messed up. Let's go take the land. And they rush in without God, without Moses, without the leading of the presence of God. And they rush into the land, and thousands die right then and there because of it. The reality is it was just a beginning of the calling of the herd and they're getting ready for the second generation to go in. But then we come to Numbers chapter 15. And randomly at the end of chapter 15, at the very end of this Parsha, we have this description of the tzitziot, of the, the uh, tassels that we wear on our taligadol and our taligatan. Uh, and if you'll, if you'll turn there, verse 37 of Numbers chapter 15. It says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Speak to B'nai Israel. Say to them that they are to make for themselves seed seed on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they are to put blue cord on each seed seed. It will be your own seed seed. So whenever you look at them, you will remember all of the mitzvot, all the commandments of Adonai, and do them and not go, spying out after your own hearts and your own eyes prostituting yourselves. This way, you will remember and obey all of my mitzvot, and you will be holy to your God. I am Adonai your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai your God. Now, a lot of times we look at the command for the tzitzit, uh, and as we wear them and we think about them, we wear a tzitzit, we look at this command, and we focus on the fact that it says that we are to look down upon them and remember the commandments. 
But what's really interesting here is if we actually pay attention, we recognize that the command to where it is actually directly connected to the report of the evil report of the spies and the nation of Israel rejecting God's promises of the promised land because of the report of the spies. He says here, verse 39, it will be your own tzitzit. So whenever you look at them, you will remember all of the mitzvot of Adonai and do them and not go spying out after your own hearts and your own eyes, prostituting yourselves. The word here in Hebrew that's used for spying, uh, this word is actually, uh, if I can get my note to work, Come on. This word is uh, uh, tatsuru from the root word tor, meaning to spy. This is the same exact root word, the same exact word that is used at the beginning of this Parsha, Numbers 13, when Israel is told to send spies into the land. It's the exact same word. There's several words in Hebrew that can be used for spying, yet God chose in this Parsha to begin the Parsha saying, we're sending you out to spy out the land and to end it by saying, you're going to wear these seats eat as a reminder not to spy after your own hearts and do what you desire to do uh, the, the, the reality here is that these words were selected intentionally by Adonai to remind Israel of their mistake with the report of the spies and to remind them not to do the same thing spying after their own heart and their own eyes and breaking covenant with Adonai uh, when we go a little bit further back into verse 39, the Hebrew where it says, uh, it will be your own seat seat. Verse 39, that, that word there that's translated as it will be, the word is actually oto, which uh, is translated as it here, but it's actually he, uh, as in he will be your seat seat. Uh, and the Talmud says that the most accurate translation is he. As a matter of fact, if you punch this word in Hebrew into a Hebrew translator, it comes out with he will. All right, so it's literally he. They say that when uh, one looks at the tzitzit, particularly the techlet or the blue string, that they see that we see God, or as uh, I would like to say, we see Yeshua, the living Torah, the living Word, and we're reminded to keep the the commandments. If we look at the tzitzit, the way that they're tied, first off, the Hebrew word tzitzit itself has a numerical value of six hundred. We look at the fact that each tzitzit has eight strings. And five knots, five total knots in the, the tying process. Eight and five is 13. 600 is the numerical value of the word CT plus 13 added to it for the knots and for the eight strings. And we get 613. How many commandments are there in the Torah? 613. Now, again, this is just tradition, right? The way we tie them is just tradition. But it's specifically designed to bring us a reminder of the 613 commandments of the Torah, or more specifically, the Torah itself, which is ultimately to point us to the Word made flesh, the Torah itself made flesh, Yeshua Mashiach. When we look down at the tzitzit, the command is to tie it with techlet, with blue string. And that techlet is very complicated to come by because of the way we chose to make it, the particular dyes that are used, and the, the type of crustacean that it comes from, uh, or the snail, whatever it is that it comes from, and so on. It's very difficult to come by. It's very expensive because it's very rare to come by. As a matter of fact, for uh, hundreds of years now, Judaism has thought that we had lost the snail, that it was extinct, and we could no longer dye uh, the, the string blue because of it. And so most of Judaism wears just the white strings, no blue strings at all, because the, the perception is, you know, it's better that we at least try with what's available than that we not do it at all because we don't have that blue string. 
And so what we see is that most of Judaism has left out that blue string, but the techlet is one of the most important parts of it. It specifically says tie it on with the techlet, with the blue string. It's one of the most important parts of the tzitzit, in my opinion. And the reality is, is that that Hebrew word for blue is the same as what we get our royal garments from. It points us specifically to the kingship, to the Yeshua. It points us specifically to that reality of him as our king and our authority. And so not only do we have this reminder from the tzitzit of his word, of his commandments, but we also have a reminder of who Messiah is as that word made flesh and as our Melch Mashiach, our King Messiah. So we see all of this wrapped up into this one simple little thing that most of the body of Messiah would go, that's just some ridiculous tradition and it doesn't matter anymore. Or that many believers today have seen these taligadols, what are often called prayer shawls, and they see it as some sort of prophetic imagery or some sort of neat worship thing to take part in, ignoring the fact that God gave us a very specific reason for why we're to wear it in the first place. And it's vitally important because it says in verse 39, it will be your own city. So whenever you look at them, you will remember them. It's the commands of Adonai and do them, do God's will, his word, his ways, and not go spying after your own hearts and your own eyes, prostituting yourself. In other words, not chasing your own desires, but walking with God in his desires. You know, it's interesting how often this idea of the CTO to appear in Scripture. As I said earlier, talking about uh, the, the medical outreach trips, if you go to Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, we read, Thus says Adonai Tavod, in those days it will come to pass that ten men from every language of the nations will grasp the corner of the garment of a Jew, saying, and by the corner of the garment it's talking about the seat seat uh, on the four-cornered garment, will grab the corner of the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So right here in this end-time prophecy, we see the importance and the value of the tzitzit. How else are they supposed to grab our tzitzit if not to see them and to recognize what it is and what it means? And this is because they're going to see the reality of what is happening. We go forward to Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse... Come on, behave yourself. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 says uh, this is right after Yeshua is being led to go and pray for one of the, uh, uh, the synagogue leader's uh, kid. He's on his way there, and verse 20 says, Just then a woman losing blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the seed seed of his garment, reached up and grabbed Yeshua's seed seed off of his, his clothing. For she kept saying to herself, If only I could touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. But then Yeshua turned and saw her. Took heart, daughter, uh, Take heart, daughter. He said, Your faith has made you well. That very hour the woman was healed. So we see this connection with the seed seed and the, the power that flows through when it says that there's healing in the wing and his wings talking of Yeshua when it says there's healing in his wings and the prophecies it's talking about the talikatan that he wears the way it's worn it looks like wings to some degree and prophetically speaking in the scriptures there are countless references to the talit and this idea of wings and so when it says there's healing in his wings she was well aware of this she was well aware of what the imagery meant she was well aware of what the tzitziot were she was well aware of the prophecy and the promise that there's healings in his wing, healing in his wings and she reached up in faith and grabbed a hold of its tzitziot in the midst of this crowd trusting that there was healing in his wing and that God was going to do something mighty and powerful through this imagery that points us directly to Yeshua because it's a reminder of the commandments of not chasing after our own ways and specifically of Yeshua as our Melech Mashiach something that we are, that we interact with and we wear uh, on a daily basis in Numbers 15 
verse, I'm sorry, Matthew 15, verse uh, 1, we see this uh, discussion here of the, the, the Pharisees and the Torah scholars that are trying yet again to trick Yeshua. Um, and so they're talking to him and they say, uh, it says, then some of the Pharisees and Torah scholars came to Yeshua from Jerusalem. They said, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not do the ritual hand washing when they eat bread and so on and so forth. And there's this whole discussion back and forth of what's going on. In verse 8, Yeshua says, this people honors me, honors me with their lips, but their hearts, uh, their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching that doctrines, the commandments of men. So we see again this, remember the, the whole point of the tzitzit is when we look down upon them, we won't chase after the ways of our heart, right? Because Proverbs tells us over and over again, the heart will lead us astray. The, uh, the, the scriptures, the whole tells us this. So Yeshua says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Verse 10, then Yeshua called the crowd and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes the man unholy, but what comes out of the mouth. This makes the man unholy. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard this saying? But he replied, uh, every plant that my father, my heavenly father is not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter answered uh, and said to him, explain this parable to us. Are you also still lacking understanding, Yeshua says? Don't you grasp that whatever goes into the, ma the mouth passes the stomach and then is ejected into the sewer. But, it's a way more PC way of wording that than I would have. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and those things make the man unholy. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slanders. In other words, the complete opposite of the word of God. These are the things that man that make the man unholy, but to eat with unwashed hands does not make the man unholy. We go to Second uh, uh, Chronicles seven fourteen, and as we've talked about this in the past, this is right after Solomon has built the temple. They've now had this huge celebration. They've celebrated Sukkot, and now Solomon is standing up and he's speaking prophetically to the nation of Israel. And it's almost a repetitive concept from the blessings and the curses. Verse twelve says, "Then Adonai appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there is no." or if I command the locusts to de devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, when my people, so we've got all of these bad things from the curses, right? God, in essence, God's saying, I've set the temple up here. I've set this up as a house of prayer and worship for all nations. And as long as you walk with me, everything will go well. But as soon as you walk away from me, here are all these curses are gonna come upon you. And he says, verse uh, 14, when my people over whom my name is called humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. And as believers, we love to quote this passage by itself, ignoring what comes before it, right? And, and we've got to understand as believers, in order to get to the point that we have to be these people that come back to him in this way, we had to have first jacked things up so far that everything around us is a miserable mess. And the only way we get there is because our hearts were led astray from the ways of God because we allowed ourselves to chase after the ways of our heart the intention of our hearts to chase after the things that our eyes see that we for whatever reason have deemed to be better or holier than what God has in store for us 
So again, this discussion in Numbers 15 about the tzitzit. Verse 37, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Speak to B'nai Israel, say to them that they are to make for themselves tzitzit on the corners of their garments. Throughout their generations, they are to put a blue cord on each tzitzit. It will be your own tzitzit. So whenever you look at them, you will remember all the mitzvot of Adonai and do them and not go spying out after your own hearts and your own eyes, prostituting yourselves. This way you will remember and obey all the mitzvot and you will be holy to your God. I am Adonai, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai, your God. The whole reason we wear tzitzit in the first place isn't just to be a reminder of the commandments. It's not just to remind us of that. My, my dad and I, we, we banter back and forth. We're, we're Jewish, so we argue a lot just for kicks and giggles, but we banter back and forth and have for years half-joking, half-serious about how we wear our tzitzit because he wears his tucked into his clothes and I always have mine uh, out in the open, right? I mean, even with my shirt tucked in, my tzitzit are out. I've always got them out like that, and we banter back and forth about it, and ultimately my response to why I do it the way I do it is very simple. I wear them out because the Torah says when you look down upon them. And if the only time that I can look down upon them and then be a reminder to follow God's ways and not chase after my own ways and my own eyes and my own heart is when I'm in the bathroom, it's not really doing me a lot of good. I mean, granted, the first couple of days of the trip uh, to Ethiopia, I was in the bathroom a lot. Maybe it had done me a little more good there. But generally speaking, if the only time that my seats eat are of any use is when I'm in the bathroom, then they're of no use at all. Not to mention... If Zechariah 8 says that 10 men of the nations will come up and grab a hold of my seat seat and say, take me, I know that God is with you. I don't want them reaching my pants to do that. That's just weird. I got to make it easy for people, right? That's just weird. A lot of times we get hung up uh, in Messianic Judaism on the practicum, right? On the, the physical interaction, like how do we live this out? And we get hung up on, on trying to do things in just the right way, on how strict we are about things or not strict we are or what have you. And I think a lot of times we find ourselves in a relatively similar situation to a lot of Orthodox Judaism. Within, within the Talmud, there's a concept called building fences. Uh, and, and hypothetically speaking, this idea of building fences in essence says, um, let's say hypothetically the Torah says it's a sin to touch this music stand. Right? At some point, a rabbi is going to come by and go, you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden like they walked with God every day, and God told them face to face, don't eat of this fruit, yet they saw the fruit and they were tempted to reach out, touch it, eat it, and see what happened. You know, I think if you walk past this music stand, just the fact that you can see it, you're that close to it, is going to be a temptation to reach out and touch it and see what might happen. So let's say you can't come within a 10-foot radius. A few years later, another rabbi would come by and go, dude, that was an awesome idea. But I think 10 foot's too close. Let's say you can't come in this room. Then another rabbi will come by and you can't come in this building. And then you can't come on this property. And then you can't come on this block. And then you can't come in this city. And then you can't come into this state. And before long, we're so far removed from the actual commandment, we have no clue what in the world God meant by it in the first place. Or what purpose it had at all. Or why it was even there. We're just following the fences at this point. We've removed ourselves from the word of God. And that first 10, 10 foot fence... It was a brilliant idea that rabbi was being a good shepherd. He was protecting his flock. It was a brilliant idea. But once you get so far removed that you no longer even see the command, you no longer understand it, there's no point to it anymore. And a lot of times within Judaism uh, and within Messianic Judaism, we allow ourselves to fall back in that same place. 
And so people will wear tzitzit because it's the, it's the thing to do, right? It's, it's this Jewish thing to do, and we're at this Messianic Jewish synagogue, and it's, it's the thing to do, so I'm going to wear tzitzit because, you know, it's to remind me of the commandments, and that's awesome. And you know what? That's kind of sort of partially true. Yes, it is to remind us of the commandments, but there's so much more to it. The reality is, is that those tzitzit are there as a reminder of a heart issue. Right? We go to Matthew 5 and Yeshua talks about uh, physical outward sins and inward sins. He says it's all about a heart issue. He says if you let me handle the heart, the inside, the outside will never be fall to sin. And so the seed seed are actually all about a heart issue. It's not just about the physical way that we wear them or what we do, which I think the physical way we wear them is of great value and importance because it points us to all of this. But if we're doing it just because it's the Jewish thing to do or just because the Torah says to or just because, then we haven't really gotten a hold of that heart thing yet. The seed seed are about a heart issue. It was given to us as a direct divine response to the sin of listening to the evil report of the spies. And that evil report came directly from the enemy. It was the enemy tempting them with this idea that the land isn't exactly what God said, that God can't really do what he says he's going to do. He uses the same crap on Yeshua, right? We go to to Matthew 3 and Luke 3, and he uses uh, the same garbage on Yeshua, right? And he says, oh, but, you know, the word says if you jump that the angels will come and save you. And Yeshua goes, yeah, but the word also says don't tempt your God. He says, but, you know, if... If, if, if you're hungry, the, the angels will bring you food. They'll bring you bread. You know, the, the, the rocks will turn into bread. And he goes, yeah, but the word says, man shall not live by bread alone. Right? The enemy is wanting to tempt us to not believe in the promises of God. And, and he's really good because he's going to use the promises of God to prove to us that we can't believe in the promises of God. And if our heart's not right, we're going to chase after the ways of our heart and our eyes. And we're going to follow the temptation of the enemy. And we're going to listen to the evil report of the spies. So the question in closing today is, what are your eyes and heart looking at? What does your heart choose to chase after and to believe in? Is your heart focused on the ways of God and the promises of God and a relationship with God? Or is your heart focused on the practical, on the day-to-day practice that's outwardly We live this life that looks like it's the right thing. It looks like we're doing the right stuff. But inwardly, we're still a train wreck. The techlet, that blue string, as I said before, it's got this direct connection to Messiah. It's got this direct connection to the reality of who he is as our Melech Mashiach. When we look down at our seat seat, it's not solely about being reminded of the commandments, although that's a big part of it. But it's a reminder to trust in God. It's a reminder to not listen to the evil report of the enemy. It's a reminder to not give in to the temptation of this world around us. It's a reminder that there is something greater that we are a part of, that God has something so much greater in store for us. And it's important that as believers and the promised Messiah of Israel, that we recognize that our tzitzit whether you're wearing a talit katan and have them on all the time or you have them on your talit gadol and you wear them in prayer and services, it's important to understand that those tzitzit are there for a very specific purpose. And as believers, we should understand that it's a heart check. 
It's not just a reminder to keep kosher, to wash your hands, or to uh, keep Shabbat, or to keep the feast and festivals. It's not just a reminder of the proper sacrificial systems, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a reminder of where our hearts are supposed to be focused, of where our eyes are supposed to be focused. When we process the Torah around the sanctuary each and every week, we make it a point to often talk about how we follow it with our eyes all the way around, and we spin in place because we never want to turn our backs on the Word of God. It's because when we turn our backs on the word of God, our eyes are focused on something other than him. Our hearts are focused on something other than him. When we're not walking in relationship with him, our eyes and our hearts are focused on something other than him. So if you are in a Messianic Jewish congregation, if you're here today, if you're listening online, if you are, are eventually possibly coming by this message, even on accident, understand that Messianic Judaism, although yes, we do cleave to the fullness of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and we do strive to live out in the best of our ability by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, it's not because we feel like we have to. It's not because we feel like there's anything we're earning in doing so, but it's because there's a heart thing going on. And every one of these commandments in the Torah, not just the tzitzit, every single one of these commandments in the Torah are to bring us to this understanding of a heart transformation. And that a heart transformation can only come through the work of Messiah and the blood atonement that he provided. And if we're going to live out his word, the only way we can do so is if our heart is pointed in the right direction, our eyes are pointed in the right direction. And the seed seed have a very valuable place in there because it reminds us of the sin of our forefathers that caused us to miss out on the promises of God. It reminds us not to listen to the evil one's report. It reminds us not to listen when the evil one says, oh, you're useless. What could God really do with you? Don't you remember what you did yesterday or last week or 10 years ago or 30 years ago? Don't you remember that thing you said to the person yesterday at the grocery store? Don't you remember the way you flipped the dude off because he was in the fast lane going seven miles an hour? And the enemy says, the enemy says, you can't, God can't use you. Come on, look at you, you're a wreck. And the Lord's standing there saying, if your heart was just in the right place, if your focus was on me, that report wouldn't mean anything because I want to change you from the inside so that you don't just simply follow after your heart, but you follow after my heart's desires. And that's ultimately the reality that we have the command for the CTO in the first place because God understands, as the graphic says, God understands that we can be our own biggest enemy. Israel shows us that over and over and over again. We can be our own biggest enemy, but the Lord wants us to understand that the fight isn't ours. As Ephesians says, it's not our fight. It's not a fight of, of this world. It's not a fight of uh, the physical. Ephesians 6.10, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's a fight that we don't have to worry about. That's a fight that we don't have to try to win because that's a fight that our God is already fighting for us. And if we simply allow him to transform and change our heart so that our heart is in connection and alignment with his heart, everything else falls to the wayside. And that's one of my favorite things. You see me wear seat seat all the time. It's one of my favorite things about it is, yes, there's a reminder of the commandments, but ultimately it's a reminder for our hearts and our eyes to be locked on him so that we can't be led astray by the ways of this world. Amen?
Avarachmim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious and caring God that loves us and desires relationship with us. Each and every waking moment uh, that we breathe your breath, the breath of life in our lungs. Father, I pray that you will continue to reveal to us the reality of the transformation of heart that you have in store for each and every one of us. And that it's not just a once and done transformation, but you are daily wanting to work at chiseling away all of that hard-heartedness, all of that garbage in our lives that, that people have fed into us, that the enemy has fed into us, that we've opened up doors and windows in our lives to allow in there, that you want to break it down, that you want to tear down those strongholds, that you want to bring us in alignment with your heart in a way that we could never imagine because you have nothing but good and promise available for us and the enemy wants nothing but death to be laying before us. And Father, we thank you that you give us reminder after reminder after reminder in your word and in our daily lives of how beautiful your promises really are and how much you desire relationship with us. And Father, I thank you that the CTO that I wear every single day is not here just because there's some religious practice I have to follow just for the sake of having to do so, but that they are a continual reminder of the work that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do in my heart and my life, and that as others look at them and grab hold of them and ask about them and, and talk to me about them, that it's an opportunity for me to open up the reality of your word and your promises and your heart to them. Father, I praise you that you are a great God that loves us more than we could ever imagine and that you have given your only begotten son that we can be restored in alignment with your heart here and now awaiting eternity in your presence where we can proclaim holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu in the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray and everyone says Amen and Amen.